Chapter One of the Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. The Devil's Garden by W. B. Maxwell. The devil playeth in a man's mind like a wanton child in a garden bringing his filth to choke each open path, uprooting the tender plants, and trampling the buds that should have blown for the master. CHAPTER One. The village postmaster stood staring at an official envelope that had just been shaken out of a mail-bag upon the sorting-table. It was addressed to himself, and for a few moments his heart beat quicker with sharp, clear percussions, as if it were trying to imitate the sounds made by the two clerks as they plied their stampers on the blocks. Perhaps this envelope contained his fate. Soon the stamping was finished. The sorting went on steadily and methodically. Before long the letters and parcels were neatly arranged in compartments near the postman's bags. The first delivery of the day was ready to go forth to the awakening world. All through, Mr. Dale. The postmaster struck a bell and glanced at the clock. Five fifty-six. Up to time, as usual. Now then, my lads, off with you. The postmen had come into the sorting-room and were packing their bags and slinging their parcels. Sharp's the word. Picking up his unopened letter, the postmaster went through the public office, stood on the outer threshold, and looked up and down the street. To his left the ground sloped downward through a narrowing perspective of house-fronts and roof-cornices to faint white mist, in which one could see some cattle moving vaguely, and beyond which, if one knew that it was there, one might just discern a wide space of common land stretching away boldly until the dark barrier of woods stopped it short. To his right the ground lay level, with the road enlarging itself to a dusty bay in front of the Roebuck Inn turning by the churchyard wall, forking between two garden houses of gentlefolk, and losing itself suddenly in the same white mist that closed the other vista. Over the veiling whiteness, over the red roofs, and high above the church tower, the sky of a glorious July morning rose unstained to measureless arches of blue. As always in this early hour of the day, the postmaster thought of his own importance. The village seemed still half asleep, blinds down wherever he looked, lazy, money-greedy tradesmen not yet alive to their selfish enterprises, only the poor laborers of the soil already at work. And nevertheless here was he, William Dale, up and about, carrying on the continuous business of the state. But how long would he be permitted to feel like this? Could it be possible that the end of his importance was near at hand? on Her Majesty's service. He opened the envelope, unfolded the folio sheet of paper that it contained, and began to read, and immediately all the blood in his body seemed to rush to his head. I am to inform you that you are temporarily suspended. And in the pompous language of headquarters he was further informed that the person appointed to take over control would arrive at Rodchurch Road Station by the eleven o'clock train that he himself was to come to London on the morrow and immediately call at the GPO, where, on the afternoon of that day or the morning of a subsequent day, he would be given an opportunity 
of stating his case in person, agreeable to his request. Why had they suspended him? Surely it would have been more usual if they had allowed him to leave the office in charge of his chief clerk, or if they had given charge of it to a competent person from Rodhaven, and not sent a traveller from London. The travelling inspector is the bird of evil presage. He hovers over the houses of doomed men. William Dale ran his hand round the collarless neck of his shirt and felt the perspiration that had suddenly moistened his skin. He was a big man of thirty-five, a type of the strong-limbed, quick-witted peasant who is by nature active as a squirrel and industrious as a beaver, and who, if once fired with ambition, soon learns to direct all his energies to a chosen end and infallibly wins his way from the cart-tracks and the muck-wagons to office-stools and black coats. Not yet dressed for the day in his loose serge jacket and unbraced trousers, he looked what was termed locally a rum customer if you had to tackle him. His dark hair bristled stiffly, his short moustache wanted a lot of combing, a russet stubble covered chin and neck, but the broad forehead and blue eyes gave a suggestion of power and intelligence to an aspect that might otherwise have seemed simply forbidding. "'Good morning, sir,' one of the helpers at the Roebuck stables had come slouching past. "'Good morning, Samuel.' It was still music to the ears of the postmaster when people addressed him as sir, especially if, like that fellow, they had known him as a boy. But he thought now that perhaps many who spoke to him thus deferentially, in truth, desired his downfall. Quite possible. One never knows. He himself wished them well, in his heart was fond of them all, and craved their regard, although he was too proud to be always seeking it, or even going halfway to meet it. And he thought tolerantly that you cannot have everything in this world. Your successful man is rarely a popular man. He had had the success in full measure. If it pleased them, let the envious ones go on envying him his elevated station, his domestic comfort, and his pretty wife. As he thought of his wife, all his reflections grew tender. She was probably still fast asleep, and when presently he went upstairs to the private part of the house, he was careful not to disturb her. His official clothes lay waiting for him on a chair in the kitchen. They had been brushed and folded by Mary the servant, who sprang to attention at the appearance of her master, brought him shaving water, arranged the square of looking-glass conveniently, assisted with the white collar and black tie, and generally proved herself an efficient valet. She ventured to ask a question when Mr. Dale was about to leave the kitchen. "'Any news, sir?' "'News?' Mr. Dale echoed the word sternly. "'What news should there be? Anyway, what news that concerns you?' "'I beg pardon, sir.' Buxom, red-cheeked Mary lowered her eyes, and by voice and attitude expressed the confusion proper to a subordinate who has taken a liberty in addressing a superior. "'I'm sorry, sir, but I only asked.' "'All right,' said Dale less sternly. "'You just attend to your own job, my girl.' He went down into the office and did not come up again until an hour and a half later, when breakfast was ready and waiting. He stood near the window for a few moments, meditatively looking about him. The sunlight made the metal cover of the hot dish shine like beautifully polished silver. It flashed on the rims of white teacups, 
and, playing some prismatic trick with a glass sugar basin, set a stream of rainbow tints across the two rolls and the two boiled eggs. An appetizing meal, and as comfortable, yes, as luxurious a room as any one could ask for. Through the open door and across the landing, he had a peep into the other room. In that room there were books, a piano, a sofa, hand-painted pictures in gold frames, the things that you expect to see only in the homes of gentlemen. Sorry I'm late, Will. Don't mention it, Mavis. Mrs. Dale had come through the doorway, and his whole face brightened, softened, grew more comely. Yes, he thought, a home fit for a gentleman, and a wife fit for a king. Any news? They've told me to go up and see them tomorrow. And he moved to the table. Come on, I'm sharp set. Did they write in a satisfactory way? Oh, yes. Sit down, my dear, and give me my tea. He had said that he felt hungry, but he ate without appetite. The roll was crisp and warm, the bacon had been cooked to a turn, the tea was neither too strong nor too weak, and yet nothing tasted quite right. Well, said his wife, toward the end of the meal, I can see you really aren't satisfied with their answer. Do tell me. And she stretched her hand across the table with a gesture that expressed prettily enough both appeal and sympathy. She was a naturally graceful woman, tall and slim, with reddish-brown hair, dark eyebrows, and a white skin. And she carried her thirty-two years so easily that, though the searching sunlight bore full upon her, she looked almost a young girl. Dale took her hand and squeezed it, and then, with an affectation of carelessness, laughed jovially. They've appointed a deputy to take charge here during my absence. Oh, well! Mrs. Dale's dark eyebrows rose, and her brown eyes grew round and big. In a moment all the faint glow of color had left her pale cheeks, and her intonation expressed alarm and regret. It riled me a bit at first, said Dale firmly. However, it's no consequence, really. But, Will, that means... She hesitated, and her lips trembled before she uttered the dreadful word. That means suspend it. Yes, pro tem. Don't fret yourself, Maeve. I tell you, it's all right. But, Will, this does change the look of things. This is serious now. And once more she hesitated. Will, let me write again to Mr. Barradine. No, said Dale with great determination. May I get Auntie to write to him? She said she knows for sure he'd help us. Well, he said so himself, didn't he? Yes, anything in his power. Dale reflected for a moment, and when he spoke again his tone was less firm. In his power. Of course, Mr. Barradine is a powerful gentleman. That stands to reason. But all the same, let's have a look at his letter. I haven't got his letter, Will. Haven't got his letter? What did you do with it? I tore it up. Tore it up? Dale stared at his wife in surprise and spoke rather irritably. What did you do that for? You seemed angry at my taking on myself to write to him without permission, so I didn't wish the letter lying about to remind you of what I'd done. You acted foolish in destroying documentary evidence, said Dale sternly and warmly. But then immediately he stifled his irritation. Don't you see, lassie, I'd a like to know the precise way he worded it. I'm practiced all the turns to the best sort of correspondence, and I'd a known in a twinkling whether he meant anything or nothing. He said he'd be glad to do what was in his power. Really, he said no more. Very good, we'll leave it at that. 
he has done more than enough for us already and i don't hold with bothering gentlemen in and out of season besides this is a bit in which i don't want his help nor anybody else's this is between me and them he pushed away his uneaten food stood up and squared his big shoulders yes but will dear you you won't be hasty when you get before them dale frowned then laughed mave trust your old boy and don't fret he came round the table and laid his hand on his wife's shoulder my sweetheart i'm sorry for your sake that this little upset should have occurred but don't you fret i'm coming out on top maybe this is like touch and go i don't say it isn't but i know my varlu and i mean to let them know it if they don't know it already look at my record who's going to pick a hole in it no but there's times when a man's got to show pluck to stand his guns and assert hisself for what he's worth and that's what i'm going to do in the general post office of all england as he said this the blood showed redly and every line of his face deepened and darkened you keep a stout heart this isn't going to shake william dale off of his perch no and she looked up at him with widely opened eyes no he gave her shoulder a final pat and laughed noisily no it'll set me firmer on the road to promotion than what i've ever been when i get back here again i shall be like the monkey best part up the palm tree and nothing dangerous between him and the nuts all that day dale was busy installing the deputy you find us fairly in order he said with a pride that did not pretend to conceal itself nothing you wouldn't call shipshape apple pie order said mr ridgett absolutely okay mr ridgett was a small sandy man of fifty who obviously wished to make himself as agreeable as might be possible in rather difficult circumstances during the afternoon he listened with an air of interested attention while dale told him at considerable length the series of events that had led up to this crisis for your proper understanding said the postmaster i'll ask you once more to cast your eye over the position of the instruments and he marched mr ridgett from the sorting-room to the public office and showed him the gross error that had been committed in placing the whole telegraphic apparatus right at the front close to the window merely screened from the public eye and the public ear by glass partition work instead of placing it all at the back out of everybody's way i told them it was wrong from the first when they were refitting the office at the time of the extensions my experience at portsmouth had taught me the danger it seemed that one evening about three weeks ago a certain soldier on leave had been lounging against the counter close to the glass screen on the other side of the screen the apparatus was clicking merrily while miss york the telegraph clerk dispatched the message and all at once the soldier who was well versed in the code began to recite the message aloud the postmaster peremptorily ordered him to stand away from the counter an altercation ensued and the soldier became so impudent that the postmaster threatened to put him outside the door oh said the soldier it'd take a many such as you to put me out did he really say so really now and mr ridgett looked at dale critically i take it he was a heavyweight eh he gave me my work said dale and i was all three minutes at it but out he went really now and mr ridgett smiled i had stopped miss york from operating and i started her again within four minutes that was the time and no more the message was delayed 
that was the time it took me to renew the service with the confidence and secrecy provided by Her Majesty's regulations. And I ask you, how else could I have acted? Was I to allow a telegram consigned to my care to be blabbed out word for word to all the world? Were there many people in the office just then? Two. But that makes no difference. If it had been only one or half a one, it couldn't be permitted. And was the message itself of a particularly private or important nature? Not as it happens, but the principle was the same. Just so. As it appeared from Dale's narration, the soldier was at first willing to accept his licking in a sportsmanlike spirit, was indeed quite ready to admit that he had been the offending party. But injudicious friends, secret enemies of Dale perhaps, had egged him on to take out a summons for assault. When, however, Dale appeared before the magistrates, the soldier had changed his mind again. He did not appear. He allowed the charge to fall to the ground. And there the matter might have ended, ought to have ended, but for the fact that the local member of Parliament suddenly made a ridiculous fuss, said it was a monstrous and intolerable state of affairs that soldiers of the Queen should be knocked about by her civil servants, wrote letters to other members of Parliament, to government secretaries, to newspapers. Then the excitement that had been smoldering burst forth with explosive force, shaking the village, the county, the universe. Dale, at handy grips with his superior officers, stood firm, declined to budge an inch from his position. He was right, and nothing would ever make him say he was wrong. "'Ah, well,' said Mr. Ridget, "'if that's the way you looked at it. But I don't quite follow how it got lifted out of their hands at Rothaven and brought before us.' "'I demanded it,' said Dale proudly. "'I wasn't going to be messed about any further by a pack of funking old women, for that's what they are, at Rothaven, and I wasn't going to have it hushed over, nor write any such letter as they asked.' "'Oh, they suggested,' said Dale, swelling with indignation, "'that I should write regret that I had perhaps acted indiscreet, but only through overzeal. "'Oh, and you didn't see your way to.' "'Not me. Take a black mark and let my record go. No, thank you. I sent up my formal request to be heard at headquarters. I appealed to Caesar. Mr. Ridget smiled good-naturedly. Why, you're quite a classical scholar, Mr. Dale. You have your Latin quotations all pat. I'm a self-educated man, said Dale. I've begun at the bottom, and I've been trying to improve myself all the way to where I've risen to. Once or twice he sought tentatively to obtain from Mr. Ridget the moral support that even the strongest people derive from being assured that they are entirely in the right. But Mr. Ridget, who had been sympathetic from the moment of his arrival, and who throughout the hours had been becoming more and more friendly, did not entirely respond to these hinted invitations. "'If you tell me to speak frankly,' he said at last, "'I should have a doubt that you've made this one false step. You haven't kept everything in proportion.' "'How do you mean?' Well. I mean it strikes me, quite unbiased, you know, that you've let number one overshadow the situation. You've drawn it all too personal to yourself. I don't see that, said Dale forcibly, almost hotly. It's the principle I stand for, pretty near as much as for myself. Ah, yes, just so, said Mr. Ridget. And now I'm going to ask you to help me find a bedroom somewhere handy and put me up to knowing where I'd best get my meals. And he laughed cheerfully. Don't think I'm establishing myself, but one may as well be comfortable if one can. 
and I do give you this tip. You're in for what we used to call the devil's dance up there. Caesar is a slow mover. I mean, it won't be step this way, Mr. Dale. Walk in this minute. They'll keep you on the dance. I should take all you're likely to want for a week, at the least. Dale made arrangements for the future comfort of the visitor and hospitably insisted that he should take his first substantial meal upstairs. It's served at seven sharp, said Dale, and we make it a meat tea, but you aren't restricted to non-alcoholic beverages. Oh, tea is more than good enough for me, thank you. Mavis, said Dale, introducing his guest, this is Mr. Ridget, who is so kind as to honor us without ceremony. And, as if to demonstrate the absence of ceremony, he put his arm round his wife's waist and kissed her. Mr. Ridget smiled and opened conversation in a very pleasant, easy fashion. From the look of things, he said facetiously, I hazard to guess that you two aren't long home from the honeymoon. You're off the line there, said Dale. We're quite an old Darby and Joan. Really? And Mr. Ridget's smile, as he regarded Mrs. Dale, expressed admiration and surprise. Appearances are deceitful. And how long may you have been running in double harness? Eleven years, said Dale. Never. Any children? No, said Mrs. Dale. No, said her husband. We haven't been blessed that way. Not as yet. I note the addition, not as yet. Very neatly put. Mr. Ridget laughed and bowed gallantly to Mrs. Dale. Plenty of time for any amount of blessings. Then they all sat down to the table. During the course of the meal, and again when it was over, they spoke of the business that lay before Dale on the morrow. I've ventured to tell your husband that perhaps he has been taking it all too seriously. Oh, has he? I'm so glad to hear you say it. And Mavis Dale, with her elbows on the table, leaned forward and watched the deputy's face intently. Too much of the personal equation. Yes? What I say is, little accidents happen to all of us, but they blow over. Mavis Dale drew in her breath, and her eyebrows contracted. Mr. Ridget, the way you say that shows you really think it's serious for him. Oh, I don't in the least read it up as ruin and all the rest of it. It's just a check. In Mr. Dale's place I should be philosophical. I should say this is going to put me back a bit, but nothing else. Dale shrugged his shoulders and snorted. Mrs. Dale's eyebrows had drawn so close together that they almost touched. Her eyes appeared darker, smaller, more opaque. Mr. Ridget continued talking in a tone of light facetiousness that seemed to cover a certain deprecating earnestness. Yes, that would be my point of view, quite general, philosophical. I should say to myself, old chap, if you're in for a jolly good wigging, why, just take it. If you're to be offered a little humble pie to eat, well, eat it. I won't, cried Dale loudly, and he struck the table with his clenched fist. I'm not going to crawl on my belly any more. I've done it in my time when perhaps I felt myself wrong. But I won't do it now when I'm right. No, so help me God I won't. It was as if all restraints had been burst by the notion of such injustice. Ah, well, said Ridget, looking uncomfortable. Then I must withdraw the suggestion. Mavis Dale was trembling. Her husband's noisy outburst seemed to have shaken her nerves. The downward lines formed themselves at the corners of her mouth, and her eyelids fluttered as if she were on the verge of tears. Well, she murmured, you, you ought to listen if it's good advice. Mr. Ridget knows the ropes. He, he has experience. 
and he means you well.' "'Indeed I do,' said Ridget cordially. "'And I thank you for it, sir,' said Dale. "'And now,' he mastered his emotions and was calm and polite again, as became a host, "'now what about two or three whips?' "'If madame permits.' "'Mabe don't mind. She's smoke-dried.' All three remained sitting at the table. The two men smoked their pipes reflectively and spoke only at intervals, while Mavis sank into the motionless silence of a deep reverie. The golden sunlight came no more into the room. Bright colors of oleograph pictures, hearthrug, and window curtains imperceptibly faded. The whole world seemed to be growing quiet and cool and gray. The sounds of voices and the rumble of passing wheels rose so drowsily from the street that they did not disturb one sense of peace. All at once Mavis roused herself, or rather seemed to be roused involuntarily by some inward sensation, perhaps an ugly and unexpected turn that her thoughts had suddenly taken. She gave a little shiver, looked across the table at the visitor, as if surprised at his presence, and then began to talk to him volubly. "'Do you know this part of the world? It's a pretty country, especially the forest side. Lots of artists and photographers come here on purpose to take the views.' For a little while she and Mr. Ridget chatted gaily together, and Dale observed, not without satisfaction, that the deputy patently admired Mavis. "'Yes,' he thought, "'it must be an eye-opener for him or anybody else to come up those stairs and find a postmaster's wife with all the education and manners of a lady, and as pretty as a bunch of primroses in the bargain. And indeed little Mr. Ridget was fully susceptible to Mavis' varied charms. He liked her complexion, so unusually white. He liked her hair, such a lot of it. He liked the mobility of her lips, the firmness and straightness of her nose. And he also liked the broad black ribbon that was tied round her slender neck. The simple decoration seemed curiously in harmony with something childlike pertaining to its wearer. He did not attempt to analyze this characteristic, but he felt it plainly, something that drew its components from voice, expression, gesture, and that as a whole carried to one a message of extreme youth. And how fond of her husband! The anxiety for his welfare that she had shown just now quite touched the soft spot in Mr. Ridget's dryly official heart. "'You know,' said Dale, interrupting the conversation, and speaking as though the subject that occupied his own mind was still under debate, "'they can't pretend but what I warned them. I said it's madness to go and put the instruments anywhere but the place I've marked on the plan. If they'd listen to my words, then—' "'Ah, there you are again,' said Mr. Ridget. "'The personal equation. Where's the personality of it?' "'I'll tell you. London isn't Rodchurch.' What you said how many years ago isn't going to govern the judgment of people who never heard you say it. It ought to have gone on record. It is on record at Rodhaven. London isn't Rodhaven either. Then, once again, the talk became serious, and once again Ridget saw in Mrs. Dale's white face, trembling fingers, and narrowed eyes, the deadly anxiety that she was suffering. With that face opposite to one, it would have been monstrously cruel not to offer the wisest and best-considered advice that one could anyhow produce. "'Here's verb sap,' he said solemnly, "'ultimatum and ne plus ultra. I'm giving you Latin for Latin, Mr. Dale. I understand your attitude, and I appreciate its bearing, 
but I say to you, the best causes sometimes need the best advocates. Yes, Mabel drew in her breath with a little gasp. If any of the gentry down here would speak up for you, send you a few testimonials, well, I should get them to do it. You see, from what you tell me of the case, you've your member of Parliament against you. It would be useful to counteract. Then Mavis eagerly explained that the biggest man of the neighborhood had promised to give his support to her husband. This great personage was the right honorable Everard Barradine, an ex-cabinet minister and a large landed proprietor who lived over at the Abbey House on the edge of Manninglee Chase, five miles away. Mr. Barradine had always borne a good heart to her and hers. Capital, said Mr. Ridget, visibly brightening. A friend at court. What's the proverb? It's not for me to let fall any remarks about wire-pulling. But naturally there's a Freemasonry among the bigwigs. You take my tip and use Mr. Barradine's interest for all it's worth. Well, said Dale, he has given a promise of a sort, and I shan't bother him further. After that the talk became light again. As if the strain of her anxiety was more than Mavis Dale could bear for long at a time, she plunged into frivolous discussion, telling Mr. Ridget of the splendors and beauties of the Abbey House. It was a show-place. Its gardens surpassed belief. Royal persons came hundreds of miles to look at them, and the wild historic woodland of Manningly Chase was famous, it was said, all over Europe. Talking thus she seemed as gay and careless as a child of ten. Mr. Ridget, puffing his pipe luxuriously, contemplated her animated face with undisguised admiration, and presently Dale felt irritated by the admiring scrutiny. That was what always happened. At first he felt pleased that people should admire his wife, but if they seemed to admire her the least little shade too much, he became angry. In the lanes, in church, anywhere, he froze to attentive glances of admiring males with a most portentous scowl. It was not that he entertained the faintest doubt of her loyalty and devotion, or of her power to protect herself from improper assiduities, but he loved her so passionately that his blood began to boil at the mere thought of anybody's having the audacity to court her favor. Instinctively on such occasions words formed themselves in his mind and clamored for utterance on his lips. You take care, my fine fellow. Hands off, please. Let me catch you trying it, and so on. Only thought-counters secretly used by himself, and never issued in the currency of spoken words. Now the internal warmth was just sufficient to make him push back his chair and break up the party. Mavis, he said rather grimly, we mustn't detain Mr. Ridget from his duties. Then he forced a laugh. I'm nobody, and so it doesn't matter how long I sit over my supper. But we've got to remember that Mr. Ridget is the postmaster of Rodchurch. End of chapter one. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.